The grave and death are conquered. Amen? Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our study there. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. Uh, And you've done these things for us when we were least deserving. And yet, in your grace and your love, you reached beyond the bounds of what might have been considered by the angels to be proper or understandable. You did what no one else would have done had they not shared with you your abounding love and glory. We thank you. We ask that you would take the truth about Jesus, even as we are reading and hearing about this morning, and make it dwell richly in us. Help us understand what that means. If you would, just pray for yourself right now for a few moments that the Lord would give you understanding of this text and that he would equip me and enable me with the energy and zeal and clarity to impart the truth. And I pray, Father, that as we consider these words, that we would have a will to obey, that this would not be an experience, that listening to preaching of the word would not be uh, an aspect or an attack on to life in the body, but that you would give us clarity and zeal for these things. Please strengthen us with them. Help us obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of God. Of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Last two weeks, we discussed uh, what you might consider an introduction to this text. Um, the, The rationale behind the series is that I really think this passage, particularly these two verses, is extremely instructive for us and for every church through every age. And the rationale really is to help us as a church understand what this text is doing. We've focused on a few other passages in the life of our church since we came here. Romans 1, 16 and 17 and Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. So just as a reminder, I want to address what might be a concern, and it's a legitimate concern, why focus with a particular degree of emphasis on particular passages? We don't want to create a Bible within the Bible, or a canon within the canon, for those of you who are familiar with that term. This is also why I avoid uh, favorite Bible verses. I'm not saying you have to, but I have a tendency to think a lot about my favorite things. 
And so I just, just have to force myself to have a lot of favorite things when it comes to the Bible. Because if I am not careful, I can focus on one thing or one truth or one passage at the exclusion of the others. I think we can all tend to do that if we're not careful. But in focusing on these passages, there are certain passages that uh, function, as it were, as a summary. And that if obeyed, they cause us to consume the rest of God's word in the right way. That's a very key statement, that if certain passages that instruct us how to relate to God's word, if we obey those, then it opens to us a whole world of faithfulness to the Bible. And it guards against the wrong ways of consuming God's word. There are wrong ways to be zealous about the Bible. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that testify to me and you refuse to come to me. So you can be very zealous. You can memorize a lot of scripture and be eager to know all the intricacies of theology, but miss the point. There is a way, though, to consume the word of God when we obey texts like this that guard us against that. Even we today, it's not the Pharisees we should just pick on. You know, they're, they're an easy scapegoat, even though that wouldn't have been the case for a first century hearer. They were a holiness movement, really. Conservative holiness movement in Jewish life. But we, we tend to focus on what might be called wisdom for life principles in the Bible. Um, how to live the good life. Promises to latch on that maybe will help you be more... Uh, productive and wealthy, maybe make sure your kids are well-behaved. We just gravitate towards those that we deem to be most useful. We create a Bible within the Bible when we do that. So in this message, and and the rationale for this series is to help us consume and understand this text that I think opens to us. It's not the only text that does this, but it opens to us the right way of consuming God's Word. And not just the Bible broadly, but everything that God has communicated to us in and through His Son, Jesus. So those two sermons, the last two weeks, this is kind of what we did. It functioned as it were as an introduction. And that should signal to you that we, we spent two weeks in introduction. Okay, So this could have been one sermon, but it would have been a really long introduction. So we just split it out and made two sermons out of it. So that should show you how significant I see this exhortation to be. Um, you might call it a thematic and theological overview and introduction. They helped us define terms and answer the most foundational why. Why or what is the word of Christ? We come to a text like this, the first portion of verse uh, verse 16, rather, and we're just given a term. It's undefined. Let the word of Christ. What is that? What does it mean? So we spent the first message two weeks ago on that. And why should we do all of this anyway? What does it matter? What's the point? What, what is the rationale in Paul's mind behind such a command as this? So that was last week, the love of God. The love of God animates us and gives us reason to be thankful and kind of fills us with confidence and the right foundation that we should operate from in order to obey anything, not just this command. So, 
It's maybe apropos to say in a context like this that it's important to let the sermons build on each other, so I'm thankful for a technology where if you miss those, you can go listen to them, but uh, you'll probably only get 50% out of any given message if you just come and listen to that one, so it's important to consume. They do build on each other, especially when we're focusing on a text like this. So what is the focus today? What are we doing today? What, have we done, what are we doing that hasn't already been done? And really what it is going to be is a word-by-word or phrase-by-phrase analysis of this first portion of verse 16. So we need to do a little bit by way of translation. Typically don't do this at the outset, and I typically don't give you the Greek there on the back of your bulletin. Um, but I want you to see you probably are familiar with some of these words. Here's how it might have sounded. Hologos to Christu inoiketio inhuman polioso. Poliosio. I'm not the best. And I'll probably get an email from those that are better about it and know how to pronounce it if there are any of you. Polosios. Yeah, thank you, Paul. And here's, here's a, maybe a literal rendering of it. The word of Christ, or the word of the Christ, the logos to Christu, the logos of Christ. There's two definite articles there. So the word of the Christ, let it dwell in you richly. And so you can see that the ESV, if you're looking at it, the English Standard Version, it just reorders the words a little bit to make it more readable by the modern English speaker. Here's how the NIV renders it if you're looking at the NIV. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And that's pretty good because I like how it renders the word in the Epsilon uh, new word there, in, among. It carries the idea of more collective sense. But the problem, I think, with the NIV is that it renders the word logos, which is a very important word in Christian thinking and in the Bible. It renders it as message. And there's a word that Paul could have used if he wanted it to be message, but he doesn't use that. He words logos. He uses logos. The NASB renders it this way. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that's pretty good as well. It maintains the word of Christ and richly dwell. I think that's a, a vibrant way to say that. But it says within you. And it's not that that's wrong, but if we're reading through and we're not being careful and we read the phrase within you, The imagery that comes to your mind, at least that comes to my mind, is something like this. In my heart, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Like, okay, it's it's personal. It, It comes in here, but it's a plural verb. And then the the Holman Christian Standard Bible or the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible says it this way: Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you. And I think the word of Christ, as we saw two weeks ago, is broader than just the message about Jesus. You know, typically what could come to our minds if we were to say that is uh, just the truth of his birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection. We saw two weeks ago that Colossians 1 through 2, it doesn't take that merely terrestrial approach. It's cosmic. From before all time, what God is doing, even in the creation of the world, all of that. So it's bigger than just the message about the Messiah, And uh, the New Living Translation says it this way, let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. And that's a decent paraphrase maybe, but still filling your life, it has this idea of personalization. 
That it's something that is within you, in your heart, and it's kind of bursting forth, and that's not really the idea here. The only downside, honestly, of the ESV, and this is a underhanded attempt to commend the ESV to you, um, you don't have to buy it, but I like it the most. The, the only downside is that the you should be a y'all, but that's coming from a Texan, so uh, otherwise it's perfect. It's a perfect word for word, thought for thought, and it keeps translation out of it as much as possible. But all kidding aside, here, let, here's a faithful paraphrase, if you will, or translation. Let the word of Christ take up residence in, all, in you all together richly. Let the word of Christ take up residence in you all together richly. So, let's go through it. You can see, based on the Greek that I've given you, that the first phrase that occurs is the logos of Christ, the word of Christ. So let's talk about that phrase. We're not going to rehearse everything that we said two weeks ago. But you can see why we spent a whole sermon on it. This command, this exhortation is not going to make sense unless you know the content of that phrase. And here's the definition we supplied two weeks ago. The word of Christ is all of God's communication, or you could supply the word revelation, to us, understood in and through the person and work of Jesus. Let me say it again. It is all God's communication or revelation to us, understood in and through the person and work of Jesus. So, it's not just, like I've said, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or how Jesus can save you. Those are important parts of it, but that's not all of it. It is all that God is revealing to us about himself and about ourselves, understood and seen and interpreted through the lens of the life, death, burial, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. That's what it means. It is as if the person and work of Jesus becomes the glasses through which you see yourself and everything, the world and all that God is doing in it. Essentially, the word of Christ is what Jesus himself gave the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember the story? Jesus intentionally conceals his identity from two disciples as they're going from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, about a hike of about seven miles. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of it understood in and through him. Or it's how the author of Hebrews begins his letter. If you want to turn there, you should be, if you were here when we started, be familiar with this passage. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs." God speaks in other ways, and he does in the Old Testament. But now that the Son has come, 
He is the definitive revelation of all that God is about, of all that God is doing, and all that God is. The exact imprint of his nature. Everything you want to know about God is found in the person and work of Jesus. Everything you want to know about the world and why it exists and why we are as we are is found and interpreted and understood in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, we're not going to, again, we're not going to revisit everything we said, but I want to give you three reminders that are key about the word of Christ. It is more than the narrow focus on how a person gets saved. The word of Christ stretches from before all time to when time is no more. It's the reason everything else exists. Secondly, it is about Christ. (laughs) That should be obvious, but I think we can forget that, that the gospel is mainly a rescue plan about us, where God is an important person and Jesus has an important function in the story of the rescue plan. But it's ultimately about us being restored in some sense. The word of Christ is about Christ. God is revealing who he is and what he's about and his nature in and through the person and work of Jesus. And thirdly, it is personal. Even though it's about Jesus, it is personal. Faith defined properly is seeing all that God has revealed in and through the person of Jesus and saying yes and amen and I'm in for all of that. And if you're here and you do not believe in the word of Christ, if you've heard the truth about Jesus a lot and you have not yet entrusted yourself to him, it's one thing to pray a prayer. It's one thing to entrust your entire life to someone. All your hopes and dreams, your entire destiny, the way you define yourself, the way you define what is good and what is wrong, all of that handed over to the person of Jesus. That's what faith is. And if you have not done so, may today be the day of salvation. The offer is real, and it is for you now. And here's the point of this first phrase, and while we're focusing on it again and not just recapitulating everything that we said two weeks ago, the word of Christ must dwell in us richly. You could read this sentence and you could put the emphasis on every single place and say a few things about the emphasis being that. But but Paul puts it at the first to make this point. It must be the word of Christ that dwells in you richly. What do you allow or seek to cause to dwell in your hearts? The truth is, brothers and sisters, friends, that something will and something does right now dwell richly in you. Now, the point of this text is communal, as we'll get to. It is a command to us. Let it dwell among us, in our midst. And we'll talk about that in a second. But let's just use this as a test to, to maybe analyze what is going on in our hearts Let's do some inventory. What idea, what thoughts, what characters, what stories, what goals dwell in my heart richly? The word of Christ must dwell in your heart 
richly. And here's the truth. You and I, we only have the space and time and mental resources to allow one thing, to dwell and have the place of supremacy in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. Let's use an analogy. Let's say that you received a, a vacation package, okay? And I enjoy snow skiing, so I'll use uh, an analogy in, in the Swiss Alps. Someone arranged for you to stay at an alpine lodge, and it's, it's really fancy. Typically, only rich people go there, maybe crime bosses or something. And you've got the reservation of the presidential suite or, or the, the, the dawn suite, as it were. And you show up and you're unpacking everything and they escort you up and you find that there are three other people at the door unloading their stuff. Not just three other people, but three other reservations. And you've all got some sort of claim on that nicest room in this lodge. Who has the supremacy? Who dwells in that room richly at that point? Well, no one does at first, but then you go down to the front desk and you try to sort it out and you figure out whose reservation should really stand. And eventually, they'll decide who gets to stay. And one guest will have the supremacy and dwell in the best room. Whose reservation are you honoring in the presidential suite of your mind? Whose reservation are we honoring in the culture and ethos of our church? What is the one thing that dwells in us richly? Is it the word of Christ? Or is it something else? For yourself, inventory questions for yourself. Is it the word of Christ that dwells in the presidential suite of your mind richly right now? Or is it the lore of your favorite games, the storylines and cliffhangers of your favorite shows, your family drama? Is it the word of Christ or is it your suffering, your job, your career, your financial goals? Is it the word of Christ or is it your theological hobby horse? or care for your home, or the approval of man? Is it the word of Christ, or is it getting ahead? Is it your favorite sports team? Is it your peace and quiet? And I'm not saying that any of those things are inherently wrong. But one will have the supremacy. One will dwell in you richly. And for our church, just as a collective inventory, is it the word of Christ that dwells in us richly, among us richly, and has the supremacy in that way? Or is it seeking to get things the way we want them, getting back to how things were in the glory days of former times? Is it the word of Christ or making sure that we get time with people just like us? Is it the word of Christ or is it our rights and preferences? Is it the word of Christ or judgmentalism and protectionism? Is it the word of Christ or theological molehills? What dwells in us richly? The word of Christ must be the honored guest. It must have the supremacy. And we must cancel all the other reservations of those who may have a claim and let it be the honored guest. Isn't it interesting that he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he doesn't say something like this, let Jesus dwell in you richly, or let the Holy Spirit dwell in you richly. Why? 
Why doesn't he say that? It would make maybe a little bit more sense for us for us to say that because we, we think in those categories, Jesus in our hearts or we receive the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't say that. No, this is similar to the logic we find in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. He says, so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, since you want this thing over here, then strive to excel in building up the church. Do this other thing over here. If you want this, then do this over here. So if you want Jesus to dwell in you richly, if you want deeper experience of the Spirit of God working powerfully in your life, then let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is how you, as a believer, increase your knowledge of the love of God expressed in the Holy Spirit and a nearness with your Messiah is by letting His Word dwell in you richly. And it's similar to Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. I want you to turn there because this is a letter written essentially at the same time, probably from the same prison cell. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. I don't have time to comment a lot on this because it's so amazing. But I want you to see how these ideas relate. If you want this thing over here, if you want more of Jesus, more of the Holy Spirit, then focus on these things over here. For this reason, I bow my, bow my knees before the Father from whom every family and in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So how is that going to happen? That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the way that Christ will dwell in our hearts and he's writing this at the same time so the same ideas are circulating in his mind. The way that we get more of Jesus is strength to comprehend what God has done. The word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So if you want more of Jesus, you want more of the spirit, then let his word dwell in you richly. So let's look at this phrase, let it dwell. The word of Christ, let it dwell. It's one word in the Greek. And the grammar of this one verb, this one word, is fascinating and instructive. We don't speak this way anymore in English. It is a third-person imperative. We don't use third-person imperatives. We, we use imperatives to a second person or a first person. So, get it together, Shirey. All right? So, we can say things like that. Or, or go get... Uh, or I'll say to my kids, go clean up the yard, right? They just scatter toys all around the yard. Go clean up the yard. It's a second person imperative. We don't have a concept in our minds of, of doing a third person imperative. But we encounter them actually in the Bible quite frequently. Most recently in our series in Hebrews, we saw in chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. It's as if the author of Hebrews is speaking to brotherly love. And, and saying in the hearing of his congregation that he's writing to, let brotherly love continue. It's the same thing we actually meet in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Let there be light. Who's he talking to? The light doesn't exist yet. The angels aren't the agent of creation. Jesus is, but he's not commanding Jesus to go and make light exist. He says, let there be light. 
He commands something that doesn't exist yet to exist. And it's not saying, I'm not saying here, please hear me say, that, that Paul is not taking on the role of God and summoning this dwelling of the word of Christ into existence. That's not, only God can create ex nihilo. But it is a cry of command. This must happen, is what he's saying. You must make sure that this happened. Make it so. Make it the case. Ensure with every effort that this takes place. Thinking again about that scene in Genesis 1, verse 3, let there be light. How aghast or shocked would you be if the light that didn't even yet exist said no? And just shrugged. For something to disobey a direct command like this from God. How shocked or aghast are you of, of our own negligence to a command like this? How, we, you know, setting that scene, we'd be so uh, baffled at the light for not obeying God to exist. Yet here we are, the people of God, and you've had your Bible or access to it all your life, virtually all your reading life, and this command from the Lord, a command of intense flavor and force, has just been sitting there for the most part. And we don't take a serious look at what it means for our lives to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, I don't think. And if you, even if you've not known this text or been aware of it, even if you're just a Christian, you're aware that the gospel even if you have a very small view of the gospel, just, just the narrow slice of how a person gets saved, you know that, therefore, it must be the most important message that it could exist, that does exist. It's the most important message that could exist in any possible world. And yet, many of us shrug. We don't have an intensity attached to our desire to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We don't treasure it enough. The flavor of this term, actually, is, is that of a house. Okay, so when, when you read, let it dwell, the, the root term is oikos, which is, is house or household. And that's why I use the analogy of the lodge or the alpine lodge imagery. And it's striking. It's as if Paul is saying, make sure the word of Christ is a welcome guest among you. That's, that's the flavor of his command here. So the word of Christ is pictured as, as, as a traveler or a vagabond who, who can't find a place to stay. And his command to us is make sure that the word of Christ is a welcomed and honored guest and has a place to stay in you, among you. The word of Christ, our most cherished message, is homeless maybe. This is why we use the analogy of the Alpine Lodge. And the word of Christ is pictured as needing a place to find, uh, a place to stay. John 8, Jesus says, This is why you don't believe, because my word finds no place in you. It, it can't come and rest. And it's similar to the parable of the seed and the sower. The seed is sown, the word is sown into the world, and, and the some soils don't have any place for it. Some, some of the places it falls, there's no soil at all. And some, there's not enough space for the, the seed to send roots down. And some 
soil, there's so many thorns and weeds around that there's no place for the word to sprout and receive the nutrients and sunlight that it needs. It's also similar to what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in in Revelation 3. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Typically, we use that verse talking about uh, unbelievers and Jesus' desire to come in and fellowship with unbelievers. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking to a church. He says, I am unfortunately on the outside. And I would like to come in and find a place to rest and find a place to eat and be a welcome guest. But you've shut the door. I have no place to come. I'm standing. I'm knocking. If you'll open, I'll come in and have dinner with you and have fellowship with you. That's the idea here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Open the door to it. Honor its reservation on the basis of you being saved by it. Similar to Jesus' birth. It's not a perfect analogy, but here Jesus comes into the city of the the place where he was supposed to be born by prophecy, the birthplace of his great-great-great-granddaddy David, and there's no room for him. What about our hearts? What about our church? Similar also to the Old Testament when it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. It's, it's, like, it's as if God's favor and his strength and his desire to show himself strong on our behalf, like there's no fitting place to land because no one will have their hearts Firmly fixed on him. That's what's going on. It's also similar to Joshua when he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it is Baal or all these other gods, or if it is the Lord. But for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. This is actually a decent New Testament analog to that command. It's as if we could say it this way. Choose you this day what you will let dwell richly in your heart. But as for me and my house and my church, we will let it be the word of Christ. Might this be what we're known for as a church? We need a retrofitted vision of how to build a church and what we are to be about. The fount of every other blessing that we would want and that we would greatly desire to the Lord to pour out upon us comes from the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It's the beginning point. The only other thing that I've said in, in our time together that I really want our church to be known for is love for one another. John 17, there's, there's so many reasons for that. This isn't a sermon about John 17. But even in John 17, do you know how Jesus prays to the Father to ensure that his followers would be made one? He says, keep them in my name. Keep them in my name. That's how it will be the case that they will be loving and unified and made perfectly one together. And, and for John, his name doesn't mean the, the verbal utterances of the syllables of Jesus or Yeshua or whatever. It's his name represents all of what he came to do, his purpose, his message, his identity, and all that God is doing in and through him. That's what it means. Might this be what we are known for as a church? That there in, at North Star, that's where that is where the word of Christ has found a place to stay. It's an honored guest there. 
There are other things to be known for. What do you want to be? Here's what I would hope it would sound like. They really love each other, and the truth about Jesus is the most important thing to them. We've got to get to work to make that happen. And the starting point is the word of Christ. Your love and oneness with one another will go astray and turn into something sinful if your love is not rooted in the word of Christ. We don't have time to discuss why. So, the word of Christ, let it dwell in you. And I hope that by what we have already said so far, and the trans- translation work we did, a, we did earlier, that you know that this doesn't mean something like in your heart. Right? In, in, in you individually. And, and I want to say, though, right now, I want to make it very clear that the word of Christ dwelling in your own personal heart is very important. That at least must be the case. Okay? But this, however, this statement means, as we said above, uh, dwell in your midst together. Be, be the common denominator in y'all's relationships. See, I threw a y'all in there. I even added an apostrophe S at the end of y'all. Y'alls. That's a Texan thing. Here's an analogy. We spend a lot of time together as a church, many families in our church, and when someone gets sick, it's not because of time spent here, it's because of time spent elsewhere together. When someone gets sick, it just spreads through the whole congregation sometimes. It's happened recently. So we understand how something other than us, in, the, in this case a negative example, a sickness or a virus, can, can permeate and, and be a common denominator in our midst for a time. So, so think of it this way. Are you behaving in a word of Christ or full, robust, gospel, contagious kind of way? That's what it's saying needs to be the case. And we know how this works. We know. We've seen it before. There are alternative things that spread very easily. I've known some CrossFit churches. Some pyramid scheme churches. Some churches that are dedicated to certain educational methods. Certain churches that are, seem to orbit in their culture around certain diets. Certain political persuasions. Maybe for a time we were a codenames church, right? Because we just played that game all the time, right? And that's, again, none of these things are inherently evil or bad at all, but they can't be the culture. They can't be the number one thing that is the common denominator in all of our lives. There's fads, theological in nature even. The apostle is saying that the church there in Colossae should be marked by, as, as a word of Christ kind of church in a permanent way. That's what he's commanding. So... What is that unifying attribute, that common denominator that is more than just the sum of the parts? Is it the building? Is it homeschooling? Is it conservatism or being cultural refugees? Or is it the word of Christ? You know why it must be the word of Christ? Because the word of Christ teaches us how to relate to all of those other things. So that none of those other good things become evil. 
because we're focusing on them too much and they become idols. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to be the honored guest and to have the supremacy and everything else opens up to you as righteousness. So he says, in you, as we've already said, it means in y'all, in all of you, in all of you together as a unit. That's the flavor of this word. It's an imperative for each of us individually. Like, we can't control what other people do. It's a, but it is a command for each of us individually to make sure that something else is the case in all of our lives. There is a collective responsibility here. We, we encountered many of these through Hebrews. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day. You see how these overlap. So it's not let the word of Christ dwell among the members of your church you like most. It's not let the word of Christ dwell in those you have a lot in common with. It's not let the word of Christ dwell in those who are the same age as you. It's not let the Word of Christ dwell in those who are in the same life stage as you. It's not let the Word of Christ dwell in uh, your other Christian friends you get along with better than the members of your church. And it is not let the Word of Christ dwell in those you have the most in common with theologically. It is in all of you together as a family... We are not supposed to be like a dysfunctional family at Thanksgiving. Like, well, that's, this is the group over here that believes this and thinks this and has this opinion on the news. And then those who have this opinion on all of this stuff. And we just kind of are in the same place for a little bit while we have Thanksgiving. And then we go our separate ways. Or are we not an expression of the family of God? The body of Christ? The temple of the Holy Spirit, a holy nation. See, what happens is our definition of gospel in Christian life can be, can be something like this. Gospel plus. Gospel plus something else. It's not because we've been reconciled to each other and to Jesus by the blood of his cross. It's because we've been reconciled to Jesus and by the blood of his cross. And we really like the Seahawks. Or... Because we've been reconciled to God and to each other by the blood of His cross, and because we, we're in the same life stage. Or because we've been reconciled to Jesus and the blood of His cross, and uh, we have kids who are really active. Let me just say again if you have not picked up on this, I've been fighting vehemently against that heresy since we got here. Because most church growth ideologies, our gospel plus. I've been asked in church planting stuff, you got to figure out what your target audience is. Is it people who are more like this or more like this? Who's your initial target audience? you got to figure out how you're really going to connect with people that are this way. And we can do the same thing. We can see that when I explain it that way. That's obviously true that we shouldn't do that, but... How do you let the word of Christ dwell in you? We can become like the ones who show partiality in James. We don't have time to go and read that passage, but the temptation for that church where James was writing to was showing partiality to the rich. 
They showed favoritism to those that were wealthy when they came in, and they, they dishonored the poor person. They didn't give him the nice place to sit. They didn't treat him well. They didn't talk to him as much after the service. They give preference to the rich people. I don't know why. And James says, I don't know why. Like, they're the ones who throw you into prison. Maybe it was like a Stockholm Syndrome type of thing where they were, like, favoring the rich. But that, that's what was going on in their midst. And we can tend to do the same thing. It's, I don't think it's a binary of rich and poor anymore, but it's just people we like. The people we know. The people we're comfortable with. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, in all of you, together richly. And it sells so much. The contrary sells so much. And it's easy to buy and it, because it makes sense. You find people who all like a certain type of sport and you can offer that at your church location and you'll have tons of people come. You'll try to convince them to hang around because of the gospel, but they came for something else. The way of the gospel, being a kind of people and the kind of person who causes the word of Christ to dwell richly in the lives of other people, no matter what their life stage, that's hard. That's really hard. And it's why the alternative sells. But there's nothing like this in the rest of the world. There is no place in the rest of the world where you can go and you can see people who have no other reason to love each other but the blood of Jesus reconciling us to each other and to God. Being the cause of genuine, real love. You can't find it anywhere else. And that manifestation of our love for others, do you see how all this connects? That type of love, that type of inexplicable love is what will convince the world that our message is legit. You can just go read John 17. Are you happy to just stand there on the sidelines when it comes to relationships with the body, with those that aren't like you? Those you don't know? I think you get it. I don't want to beat a dead horse. Um, but this is how the enemy works. And Paul says, we will not be outwitted by Satan if we are aware of his designs. The word of Christ, let it dwell in you richly. If all of that he said isn't enough to help us understand the priority of it, he doesn't just say let it dwell in you. He says let it dwell in you richly. This is actually a very simple word. It comes from uh, the word that we get poly, like in polygon. So it's a multiple-sided shape. so, So it just means a lot. Let it dwell in you much, abundantly. So it's used, this word is used for times, four other times rather, in the New Testament. And all the other places, it talks about God supplying us richly with what we need. So this idea of our cup overflowing, he, he will supply you abundantly of, with everything that you need for the Christian life. That's, that's how this word is typically used in every other case. So here in Colossians 3.16, it's the only time it's used to refer to something that we do towards each other. Something that we make sure is abundant. There are behaviors, there are things we do, that either help or hurt something dwelling in us richly. So if you're a believer, the word of Christ is already in you. Okay, The seed has been planted, it has taken root, and you are producing some fruit for God. If you're a Christian, that is the case. But 
You can either let that word dwell among you and among your brothers and sisters in Christ richly or poorly. So let's go back to the Alpine Lodge analogy, okay? Let's maybe tweak it a bit. Let's, let's use the imagery of maybe your own property. And maybe you've converted it into an Airbnb. And I think it's a great idea. I've used that service many times. It saves money. It's a lot of fun. You get to go to places and stay in types of properties that you would otherwise never be able to do. But imagine that you're a host. You, you own the property and you're renting it out. Or, or you're a part owner of one. It's a, it's a really, really nice one. And you've got a partnership, 10, 20 people or something. And you're leasing out this high-dollar property to people. And you and, the, you and the other owners, you want to make sure that your guests have the best stay at your property possible. You want them to leave you a good review so other people will come and stay or so that that same person makes another reservation next year when it's their anniversary or birthday or whatever. What type of behaviors would you and the other hosts do to make sure that those guests had a great time while they stayed. We don't have to go through and list them all, because I mean, the purpose of the analogy is to help us understand something else. Those same type of behaviors, that same level of zeal, that same attention to detail, that same eagerness to make sure that the guest isn't upset at the end of their stay, that's the zeal we need to have to make sure that the word of Christ dwells in us richly, stays in us a lot. So it will come back and make another reservation. But hopefully, the glory of the word of Christ will never leave. And the way that we allow it to be an honored guest in our midst will make sure that that never happens. Like the glory left the temple in Ezekiel. No one knew it. May that never be the case with us. And obviously, he's not talking about the church building. We don't even know if the church in Colossae had its own building. They probably met in houses. So I'm not talking about in this place, let there be like an aura of the word of Christ. He's talking about in and among your relationships with each other. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So let us have the same eagerness and zeal so that the word of Christ will always stay. So what hinders? What hinders the word of Christ dwelling in us richly? Well, just a few things before we close. Impurity, sin, a lack of attentiveness, attentiveness, caring too much for other things, honoring other things reservations, kicking the word of Christ out and letting other things stay there. Next week, we'll look at what helps, okay? because as you can see, the very next words are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So we'll get to all the things that help. But before we get to those specifics, I want to mention just a few attitudes towards the word of Christ that are, I think, implied in this text. Number one. We need to know what the word of Christ is and care very deeply to know what it is. You can read Colossians as a great example of what the word of Christ is. That's kind of what we tried to do with the first message two weeks ago. But do you really know the word of Christ? Is it your most treasured possession in your heart? 
Number two, you need to be blown away by the love of the Father that is revealed to you in the word of Christ. That was last week. And then third, this should be so simple to you and so obvious that it's silly. You have to actually want it. You have to desire and be eager and desirous and zealous for the word of Christ dwelling in us richly because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, it doesn't happen on its own. And in fact, every day that you wake up, it's almost as if the reset button has been hit. Right? Don't you find that with your own maturity and discipleship and following the Lord? It's like, all right, it's a blank slate again today. Got to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put off the old man every day. There's no momentum in baseball and there's no momentum in letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It just doesn't happen. You've got to be desirous of it. And it needs to be what you want out of your belonging to a church. This is what, what zeal and what efforts you need to bring to the table as far as what it means to belong to this family. And you need to want to receive it. See, this is the idea of the family and interdependency that we have in the family of God, that, that I need you and we need each other in order to make this the case. It's not just an individual call to personal piety. Make sure that it is in your heart alone. Make it the culture and ethos of your whole congregation, you church in Colossae and you church in Hayden. Now, my confidence as a pastor, I don't know if I would be a pastor if I couldn't believe this. My confidence as a pastor is that if you're born again, you do want it. You do want the word of Christ to dwell among you richly. You might have suppressed it. You might be ignorant of it. You might just today be awoken to the idea of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And the spirit may be giving you glimpses of what that might look like in your own life and in our midst. But I am confident and encouraged knowing that if the Spirit of God is in you, He wants to make it the case. Everything we do, albeit imperfectly here as a church, is run through this analysis. Will it help us accomplish the word of Christ dwelling in us richly? Every sermon, every Bible study, the Sunday school, the men's groups, the women's groups, the, what we're trying to get off the ground in the growth groups, the discipleship groups, everything is aimed at this. And if it doesn't help accomplish this, I'm not saying yes to it. And it might be wrong, but to act in faith, it's got to in some way help us with that. I keep pointing to the back, but the, the verse is up on the back for me. That's what I'm looking at. Y'all are looking up here. It should go like this. No one can see all in, so we don't know what will actually help 100% and what will actually hurt 100%. But we're given so much in the Bible. We can just be basically biblical. And this is why I'm eager for the next few words, teaching and admonishing one another, singing songs and hymns together. The Bible gives us the priority. We don't have to find a, a, a church growth expert to tell us, how is it, a wise person, that we will cause the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? It's in the text. But you've got to want it. So hear the cry of the apostle with the force of a command summoning you to a new way of life, because he knows, just like I know, 
that in walking in obedience to this command, it will be the very best thing for you and your family and your marriage and your relationships and your eternal good. Dear sister and brother, the word of Christ, work together and make sure with every effort that it and not something else dwells in your midst together richly. Don't leave anyone out. You must make it the case. And we can do so by the power at work within us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grace. Even though this is a command and the the sermon focuses on a command that you have given us, we know that we don't bring anything to the table. Even if we as a church can accomplish this in, in, in a so much higher degree than we already have, uh, we know that it will be because of you and your work in us and not our own strength or our own zeal. Help us send our roots deep into the word of Christ that you've already planted in our hearts so that we may have zeal and bear fruit for God to make this the case among us even more. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to us that even as I think about my relationship with each person here, I know that you are making this the case. You've blessed us greatly as a church where the word of Christ is beginning and and surging towards growing in us richly and dwelling in us richly. And I pray it would continue all the more. Give us eagerness, each of us individually, for this very thing. In Jesus' name, amen.